0: greetings and salutations this is the untitled josh episode number 13 my name is josh gershman i am joined as always by my co-host and co-josh josh hammond
1: Hey, how's it going, everyone?
0: This is our weekly podcast where we discuss what has been going on in our lives and try to have a little bit of fun while doing it. To interact with the show and for updates on future episodes and other fun stuff, you can find us on both Twitter and Instagram at JoshCastPod. You can also find us on Twitch.tv slash JoshCast. So if you would be so obliged uh, to give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram, especially on Twitch, as we're growing that platform too, uh, that would be lovely. If you want to support the show financially, you can do so at Patreon.com/slash Untitled Joshcast. Uh, a little bit of housekeeping. Um, I want to touch on obviously where we opened the show last week, which was obviously all about the protests and some rioting and violence that has kind of followed in the wake of um, of the murder of George of George Floyd in Minneapolis and everything that happened after that. Um, this past weekend, as we're recording. There was so much activity, uh, so many rallies, so many protests about, um, I want to, I want to just mention one thing in particular. Well, I mean, many things, but did you see in Washington DC, uh, what the mayor of DC did on Friday? I I said DC a lot of times in a row.
1: Are we referring to renaming the
0: street? We are. It's pretty amazing. I think it's 16th street. It's right across the street from the white house. Um, So the street itself was renamed, I think, Black Lives Matter way, but also written in or painted on the street in just giant letters is Black Lives Matter that you can pretty much see from space. Uh, It's just really an incredible, um, an incredible thing to do. Obviously, like trolling levels to infinity, just in terms of the proximity of where she did that, where they had that done in relation to the White House. Um, But it was just this was like unfolding on Friday while I was working and while I was doing other things. And it was like, wait, did this really happen? Cause someone had like posted a picture of it that was Photoshopped. Um, But then I saw video either from her or from someone else on a nearby rooftop that actually like showed everything on the street. It was, it was amazing.
1: I, um, I also noticed today that the two miles of fence that has been put up around the white house, they've started to, hang all of their protest art on this fence. So now it's just a big mural basically. So they've taken this, this symbol of like keeping them out and they've just kind of made it theirs, which I thought was pretty
0: incredible too. Yeah. Uh, It was black lives matter Plaza. I just want to make sure I got the street name, right. um, That they christened that street where they, where they did this on. I think it's, it's ironic and funny in a very, you know, schadenfreudic kind of way that, uh, Trump gets his wall built and on that wall are all these messages are all these messages of Black Lives Matter and of protest and um, of all of these things.
1: I also saw an amazing tweet this week um, that talked about at the beginning of his presidency, uh, Trump continued to say that he was going to build a wall to protect Americans. And by the end of his presidency, he built a wall to protect himself from Americans.
0: Yes. Yes. It's a, I love I love how words work like that how we can use them. Words have power. They do even when they need to be used in this way, or especially when they need to be used in this way. It's Speaking of beautiful. words, having power, that is a great segue into this episode, all about novels and all about um, science fiction. Um, actually, before we get into that, I do want to mention, well, I'm going to mention two other things. The first is we are going to be starting um, a new kind of recurring segment, a new kind of recurring episode theme, which is a movie rewatch theme, where we're gonna rewatch um, movies that are either that either have a, a movie and a direct sequel or a, a trilogy of movies, a series, if you will, um, and we'll come back after we've watched after we watch them to discuss to go through pertinent plot points. Um, I don't necessarily want to say that we're gonna be ranking X movie series because that's the kind of thing that's been done a lot i think we'll we'll do it kind of casually but i i wouldn't like star wars for instance i think i definitely want to do that i haven't rewatched the entire series in a long time and i know you you haven't seen some of the films yeah but i don't want to say that like oh we're gonna have a star wars ranking by the time we're done i'm not interested in doing that but i think we will have a lot of like fun discussions about them yeah I th- um I don't know that we've just. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. I
1: just think that that's not something that you and I are into. I think that we're the type of people that from a pop culture standpoint, things are pop culture or they aren't pop culture. I don't necessarily think we have to determine which of the three Indiana Jones films is the best. Like, I don't care. They're all good.
0: Yeah, agreed. They all have. I mean, they all have their highs and lows. They all have their redeeming qualities. But right. Like, I don't want to. We're not what we're not saying is we're going to be ranking movies. Uh, we are just going to discuss them and a set, like um, if there is a one-off that we feel that we need to discuss, we'll do that. But I think for the most part, it will be series of movies, two or three or more, so that we can have a, a holistic conversation about all of those things. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. The, the other thing I want to recommend is an episode of Star Trek. I know you're shocked. Uh, it's an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. The title of the episode is called Far Beyond the Stars. And it deals with really complex and important topics of race in publishing and in science fiction. And it's certainly like very topical to the discussion that we are literally about to have. Um, the, in the episode, there's some stuff that happens. First of all, I should mention that this is season six, episode 13 of the show, and you don't need to watch the five and a half seasons that precede it. You can, if you want. And if you do, let me know, and I will, uh, I'll happily guide you, but you don't need to watch them. Um, in this episode, some stuff happens. Uh, Benjamin Sisko, the captain, gets transported. Well, I'll use that term loosely. He ends up in like in the 50s in a publishing house that publishes science fiction. And he, as a black man, is dealing with all these issues of race and publishing and science fiction. Um, and it's, just, it's one of the best episodes of the series. It's one of the best episodes of Star Trek. And there are people who are wrong that say Star Trek isn't political. And this is like, this is right on the top of the list as to why they are so wrong. Um, Okay. Watch that episode, season six, episode 13, far beyond the stars. You will not regret it. I mean, you might regret it because then you're going to have to watch seven seasons of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. But again, let me know. I will guide you. I'll hold your hand. It's going to be fun. Okay. What we are doing today is discussing our kind of notable science fiction, alternate history, dystopia type novels. Um, uh, but we specifically brought authors to the table here, uh, that were not white men. There are plenty of them that write in this genre. There are plenty celebrated novels. Um, there are one specifically I read last year, which is great. We'll talk about it another time, several from the year before that I would love to talk about, but today is not the day for that. Um, we wanted to do that for, uh, Obviously, again, non-white men um, to get to, to to basically have that space yeah. Um, for other authors that really should be talked about. I definitely think it's important that we point
1: out that this is a our favorites that we've read also where it's not again, it's not a ranking. Um, there are things that right. I haven't read that definitely should be on this list. Uh, Station Eleven is a perfect example of that. I'm sure that it would be on my list if I had finished it. I have not. Therefore, I cannot give an opinion of whether or not it should be on this list. I'm sure that you will and can. Um, I think that it is important that we not do it as ranking because like it's hard to leave some of these books that would be on my list that we're not going to speak about today off like. I mean, I'm going to give a title one time. It's impossible for me to leave Fahrenheit off of a list like this. But yeah, there's another conversation for that. And we can have that later. That's totally fine. I do think that this is an important conversation. And I do think that doing the research for this proves exactly why we're having this conversation, because it was a significantly harder list to make than I thought it would be. It was a significantly harder list to research than I thought it would be. And I think that it is about time that the world shift around that and change a little bit. And I think that all of this dates back to a time where you and I sat in a room together and listened to a panel at New York City Book Con pretty much about this exact subject. And I'm going to go ahead and let you talk a little about that because I know that one of your favorite authors was involved in that, but... I think that this idea started with me when I texted you a couple of weeks ago about doing this from that moment, it really stood out to me how important that conversation we sat through was.
0: So that panel was all about speculative fiction, which again is like, that is, that's what I'm into. Um, None of the books that I'm going to talk about are like far future science fiction, Um, speculative fiction, at least for me, what that means to me is current or near future. Um, and like what my, how my, like if things were changed just a little bit differently, what kinds of things happen that also, uh, that also includes alternate history. So like there are two, two of the books, two of the books that I'm going to talk about are, are alternate history ish. But I think that also includes it in there. Um, but the people, the, there were three people in the panel. It was well, a moderator, which was Anthony Rapp, um, who you might know either from Rent on Broadway or from Star Trek Discovery, just a lovely human being. But the two people that he was talking to were N.K. Jemison uh, and Rebecca Roanhorse, two very popular, very successful authors in their own right, um, neither of which are white men, which is really important for this conversation um, to bring in their experiences into their work. Um, I wish I should. I should I hope somewhere there is a recording of that session because I just want to watch it again because to listen to the three of them talk, um, uh, was incredible. And that, um, what one of the reasons why book Home was so special for me is because I, I could listen to writers talk about writing all day. So like, I'm kind of probably feeding into that, that little bit of ego or maybe a lot of bit of ego that writers have that they have something that they feel like that needs to be heard. And I am a vessel for that. I'm ready to hear it all. Um, And when I was there, uh, the majority of of the panels and sessions that I went to were were put on by people that did not look like me. That was really important.
1: I think the thing that really stood out to me while watching that panel was listening to them talk about some of the award systems that come with being, you know, An incredible writer in the genre, which everybody that we're going to talk about here today, you know, deserves to be in the conversation for. But how in winning that award or in some of the awards, the awards that you win, like the Hugo or the Nebula, like some of them are named after people in the genre who are known for being incredibly racist humans. And so it's hard for them already to like be up in a genre where like growing up, like I can remember reading books and feeling represented by the characters that I was reading about. And one of the major takeaways I got from that was listening to them talk about how like they had trouble finding themselves in the books that they read growing up, that there were not characters that represented them or followed the lives that they were living. And so it was a little more difficult when they started their writing career to know how to place themselves into a novel because there were not examples of that done previously. And despite what anybody says about creativity or being an artist, we do replicate things that we've read or saw or looked at growing up. Like our art, our words, our talent comes from what we have taken in. Like, I write like Lester Bangs, not nearly as talented as Lester Bangs, but my voice emulates Lester Bangs because I read a lot of Lester Bangs growing up. And so there's a difficulty in the genre where they had to find a voice that they've created completely on their own because there was not things that were easily emulated because it just it didn't exist
0: for sure. There was a really fascinating and, and enlightening conversation that was happening on Twitter this weekend, um, that I was going to bring up later, but I actually, I think it's re- it's relevant now. So if you are on Twitter search out the hashtag publishing paid me all, like all as one thing, publishing paid me. And the purpose of it was to highlight uh, the discrepancies and, and, and sometimes vast discrepancies that writers, uh, that were not white men got paid for advances and for royalties and things like that versus, Uh, those that were not. And the discussion was uh, kind of reached reached far and wide as I was kind of following it. Um, And most of the people that were responding were um, authors of color, not just from the U.S., but globally as well, um, queer authors. And they were they were sharing the all like in publishing is one of those industries where money and financing is like really taboo. It, like it's not uncommon for it's, not, it's certainly not uncommon in the publishing uh, amongst other industries but it's just one of those things that isn't really talked about a lot of like oh how much did so and so get paid how much did you get paid um and that was like a really eye-opening transparent part of this conversation where authors were coming forward and saying um this is what I made this is what I sold my book for this is what I sold this series of books for and uh again, while most of the respondents were not white men, not like the target of of what this discussion was, was to bring those people out. There were several that to their credit, they did join the conversation, um, including Matt Haig and Chuck Wendig, both of whom we've talked about here on the podcast. Uh, they talked about what, what they were able to Sometimes you're under contractual obligation or whatever, and you can't, but they at least brought that to the conversation. But, and Kate Jemison specifically chimed in, and she was talking about how the what you get for an advance or something is, is is tied to what a publisher and what the industry thinks it, thinks your book is going to sell. And so oftentimes what that means is that comparing what you have written to other works like that. And one of the things that NK Jemisin talked about on Twitter this weekend was how there's no there's nobody for her to compare herself to and vice versa. You know, what what she's writing doesn't compare and what other people are writing doesn't compare to her. And so it's kind of impossible to come up with a rate based on that kind of calculus. And so like this highlights the challenge for a lot of writers that are, are trying to break into publishing, that are trying to carve out a space for themselves, that if what you're going to be offered is based on what already exists, uh, that can be hard to do sometimes. Uh, but anyway, this is a really fascinating conversation on Twitter. Uh, if you are interested in the world of publishing, Um, and I, as I find myself following a lot of writers on Twitter and that naturally led to following a lot of people that work in publishing, whether agents or other kind of uh, publicity folks. And so I I guess I'm just exposed to this a lot more on my timeline because this is what I see. Um, but it was a really fascinating conversation. It was really, you know, kind of brave for the, a lot of these authors to come forward and say, this is what I got paid. Um, because again, it's not something that gets talked about a lot.
1: It's cool that that conversation is happening. I think it's really important. I think that oftentimes things like that get swept under the rug. So it's cool that as negative as I am sometimes about social media and how it's only used for grumpiness, it's cool that sometimes it can start a movement like that.
0: Oh, we're going to get back to what else was happening on Twitter this weekend later. Don't you worry. It was grumpiness. It sure was. All right, let's get actually to our conversation um, about about these novels that we have uh, put some time into uh, into preparing for.
1: Cool. Um, I mean, I guess I can go first. Who wants to go first?
0: I'll go first. Well, the, the first author we're going to talk about is actually the same person. So why don't you go first and then I will pick it up.
1: All right, I'm going to go ahead and start with Kindred by Octavia E. Butler. Um, she's really, really good at, tackling the topic of race within, you know, science fiction novels, which isn't something that's commonly done. She's well celebrated. She's won the Hugo. She's won the Nebula and she's created ideas and concept within the genre that no one else has done before. Um, We were talking about this a little bit earlier in the book fledgling. She, Actually tackled the idea and concept of how a dark skinned vampire would differ from a pale skinned vampire and the advantages and disadvantages that, you know, it would have in a society of vampires, which is just a brilliant concept to me. And it's cool to me that no one had I saw your facial reaction to that. It was the exact one I had when I read about it today, where I was like, wow, that's such a unique concept that had never occurred. Yeah, that's to really. Me. Interesting. Um it's extremely powerful. Um but she also wrote what I believe to be one of the most powerful time travel books of all time called Kindred. And more importantly than all that I've said, she this book is considered to be the first science fiction novel written by a black woman. So within the novel Dana, the lead character is a 26 year old black woman who is celebrating her birthday with her husband in their home in California when she's scooped up quantum leap style and transported back to the South. Uh, she finds herself in a situation where Rufus, who is a plantain owner's son is drowning, um, and is forced with the choice to, to save him. Um, It gets her into some hijinks. She's got to, you know, get herself out of some Scooby-Doo situations where, you know, she's met with, you know, a gun in her face by the owner and things like this. I'm trying my best to do this without any spoilers whatsoever. It's a little bit hard. Um, But the book continues to go on back and forth between present time and past time with interactions between Dana and Rufus and as they're going through it, it highlights a lot of really important pieces of history that have historically been skipped over in sci-fi and even in time travel type books that they're just not highlighted. Um, it's extremely important. It is a cornerstone for the genre being what is considered to be the first, you know, science fiction novel by a black woman. But to be perfectly honest, everything that Butler writes is pretty amazing, pretty important and should be read. So my suggestion would be to read the whole catalog, not just this one.
0: For sure. Um, yeah, I haven't read Kindred. And also before I hadn't, the book I want to talk about is Parable of the Sower. Uh, and I hadn't read that before. I read it actually earlier this year, it was one of the few books that I did get to kind of before quarantine brain and anxiety brain kind of shut down my desire to read anything, um, which I feel like I'm, ha- I, I'm happy to report. I feel like I'm over that. I feel like I've gotten over that hump. Um, but w- with Parable of the Sower, it's uh, certainly very fascinating. And it, it looks at science. It What it does in science fiction is a couple of different things. Um, so this book. Uh, it tells the story of Lauren Olamina. She lives with her family in a community outside of Los Angeles and Southern California in the world of this book, which is like in the 2020s, it's essentially happening within the, like within the next couple of years. Uh, the U S of this world of this world is ravaged by climate change. There's massive wealth inequality, corporate greed is off the chart. So in other words uh, we, we have a good idea where we're headed. So fun times. Um And Obviously, again, I'm going to do as much for this book as well as for others, even though with one exception, you'll see about obviously not spoiling anything. Um, there are some events that occur, and she's forced to leave that community uh, and head north, uh, where rumors of land and jobs and peace that they're bound up, up the uh, the 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 hypothetical north, the the uh, the what am I trying to say? I can't remember. moving on. <clears throat> so there, there are a lot of notable things among many notable things about this book, about what it does for science fiction and how it really differentiates itself from other books. Uh, there are two really meaningful ones that I wanted to touch on. The first is Lauren's medical condition. So she's born with this condition that's called hyper empathy syndrome. And, uh, she got it, because of the drugs that her mother took while she was pregnant. And so that like, she was born, Lauren was then born with this condition. And what it does is that it makes you extremely susceptible to, uh, to what other people are feeling and like what they're going through. Um, so much so that, you know, again, in this world, that's like very violent and dangerous, as you could probably imagine, that if she were to witness somebody being shot, it would feel as though she was shot herself. And like, she would get knocked out and like pass out and uh, would be just like totally prone and not be able to move. Um, And that's so for both like super, I don't want to say super negative and super positive emotions, but like that can swing in both ways where if she, she can take positive empathy as well as this, I I don't say negative, I don't say empathy is negative, but like these kinds of things also would be negative about like, if you see somebody that's hurt that you itself would feel that physical pain. Um, it's just really fascinating how this, you know, that becomes a very important part of the book as her and her, uh, her band are, are traveling North. Um, the other thing is how it deals with religion, which is like, so for me, I'm not a very religious person, but I consider myself a spiritual person. Um, and this book, as well as its sequel parable of the talents are, uh, they're kind of combined to form the Earthseed series. And so Earthseed is the religion that Lauren creates in this book. And she's doing it before she has to venture out north and and during and along the way. And there are, if you read the book, like the interludes of some of the chapters are what, again, if you imagine a future for these people are what would have been like the Earthseed Bible, right? You're just reading chapter and verse of Lauren's writings of the start of this new religion that she's forming. And it's just a really fast, like it's a really fascinating thing that isn't touched on a lot in science fiction about how religion also plays a factor. And it's, it's not, it's also not hard to kind of be inspired by it, or at least wasn't, it was very easy for me to fall in with that of, you know, the more I read, the more I read about Lauren and how this trip was going. And, Uh, The good times and bad times and uh, the the struggles that they had that the these interludes that are, you know, Bible verses, essentially, um, they really add they really add context and color and. um, They really flesh out the whole the whole story of what's happening, and it's really interesting, and it's not something that's really done a lot, at least that I haven't read any of in science fiction.
1: I find her to be absolutely brilliant
0: there was a third novel that was planned in the series, the title of which escapes me at the moment, but it was something I was reading about it earlier uh, just to see. I knew there wasn't a third one, but just to see like what had happened, Uh, it was something that she had started and put down and started and put down. And uh, unfortunately for all of us, she wasn't able to get back to it before, before she died in 2006. Um, But again, she has left behind such an incredible catalog of, of work. Um, I definitely am interested in reading Parable of the Talents, which again is the sequel to this, uh, as well as Kindred and um, uh, forgive me, the vampire one. What was it called again? It was called Fledgling. Fledgling. Thank you. Um, She's just really a great writer. The first um, the first science fiction writer to uh, win the MacArthur grant, which is like a big prestigious thing. Um, And it's just it's such a great legacy there uh, and certainly deserves to be uh, deserves to be remembered and celebrated. And I hope that uh, hope that we've done her service a little bit today.
1: I definitely think that this list would not exist in the way that we are creating it had she not been an author. And I think that that's important. I think that it's clear that she has inspired a lot of the authors that are at least on my list. I can't speak for yours, but. I think that there's definitely connections. Um for sure. That said, the next li- the next book on my list. Um I picked Severance by Ling Ma. Um, it's her debut novel. It's there are parts of it that are very satire, which I found interesting, but it's satire in a really pointed way that makes you think about the reality of it. Um, it's kind of this interesting mix of a coming of age novel placed inside of a dystopian novel placed inside of a zombie novel. Um, (laughs) essentially there is there's this flu that creates zombies and it causes people instead of eating brains to repeat certain routines like cooking dinner or cleaning the table We're doing the laundry and they're just stuck in this loop over and over and over. Um, And the irony of the whole novel is that for me, the point that she was making comes through in the fact that in the middle of this pandemic, there are people who don't necessarily have this infliction but while society shuts down, people still went to the office. People were still trying to send emails that were unnecessary. And they re- they retained the routine of their day-to-day life despite the danger and despite the, the need to take any of those actions because, as a millennial, like, feeling the normalcy of that routine, Was better for them than abandoning the tasks that no longer need to take place because that's all that that generation has ever been taught is like work and work and work and work and work. And And so it's cool how she managed to make the parallel of the zombie infliction doing the routines over and over and over and the people who were not inflicted still doing the routines over and over and over. It's it's a really interesting concept.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't heard about that before you had uh, put it on the list. I'm definitely going to check that one out. Um, the the next book I have on my list is uh, it's called The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. Um, this book I had read not last year, but the year before last. And it came out in 2016, so it was already out a little bit. Um, it won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. It won the National Book Award. Uh, in the UK, it won the Arthur C. Clarke Award, uh, which is the, like a UK Best Science Fiction Award kind of a thing, um, among many, many other accolades. And so when you, when you pick up this book, as I did two years after it was published, there's a lot of, it has a lot of weight and a lot of expectation of a book like with this amount of like these amount of awards slapped onto the cover. Um, you know, you have to, you have to attempt to kind of put that away and not like, Oh, I'm reading an award-winning book. It better be good. You know, you had to have to put that aside, but um, it was certainly, it's obviously very highly regarded. And something I wanted to, 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 to dig in, to dig into. Um, so this book it tells the story of Cora, who is a slave on a plantation in Georgia, in an alternate version of the U.S. where slavery is still legal in the South, um, and the Underground Railroad of the title is an actual railroad that runs kind of like underneath the East Coast um, from south to north. Um, I don't recall how far. Well, I don't. That'll be a little bit spoilery. Um, this book and Cora's story in particular is really it's really brutal and heartbreaking and there are m- a lot of parts of it that are really difficult to read. Uh, but that's kind of the point, you know, like for me, uh, as, as you can imagine, and anyone that has literally seen my face knows that I would have very little background, personal background in slavery in the South and what growing up under that kind of environment, um, is like, and really anything about that experience. And so you know i went into this book obviously knowing that this was going to fill in some gaps of the story for me um obviously from a fictional standpoint but still reading about experiences that i did not live my own um and there were times that it was challenging uh when it was challenging to read but you know it it's like that it's like that for a very good reason um because of the story that it's telling um this is so this is getting us slightly into spoiler territory but I highly recommend people read the book. So there's a part where Cora finds herself in South Carolina and she's, um, she's living in the attic of the home of a white family. She can't leave. She can't make any noise. And her entire connection to the outside world is through like a small window in the attic where she can see like what's happening out on the street and where the, like the horrors of that society are in full view or people being lynched. Just black people being executed just because they're black. Um, and there are really like rich apt comparisons here to the story of Anne Frank and her family hidden away in an attic in Amsterdam, where you get this like very similar situation of, you know, being hidden away, being protected. Uh, and in, in kind of both, I'm pretty sure in both instances, they were kind of done in by the people who were said to be protecting them. Um, It's the book itself is really great. Again, I mentioned the awards that are well-deserved and, uh, it really tells an important story that, um, you know, that while in 2020 slavery has been abolished in the U S for 150, I'm not, I'm not good at math right now, 150 some odd years, I think we'll go with that, that this kind of story is still very poignant um, there's, I think a movie or kind of uh TV series adaptation in the works, um, that I would imagine would be very different from, uh, from another show that was supposed to be in the works called, um, I think it was supposed to be called Confederacy or something like that, where it was supposed to be like an alternate history thing of like, if the South had won the civil war, which is a little bit different from what happens here, but the um, that show, HBO was originally going to do that show and pretty quickly became like the target of of Internet kind of scorn. Right, that's a really interesting
1: topic. I missed that HBO was planning to do this series. Um, I know that in 2004, living in Lawrence, Kansas, uh, there was a, a film teacher at the University of Kansas who created a film. It was it was a mockumentary. It was called CSA, the Confederate States of America, and it was presented Hmm. uh, in fairness to him. He is a black man. Um, It was created in a way that it it rolled out like a documentary. It rolled out like a Ken Burns movie. And the thing that made it stand out and be interesting to me was not only was the way that they told the history as it was different they left commercials in and the commercials would would reflect what things would be like if this had happened this way like there was an insurance commercial and it said we are your insurance we are protecting you and your property and the camera, when they said in properties, scrolled from the car in the house over to an African-American man. And so oh. the way that he presented it was really thoughtful and really interesting. So it's interesting to me that this was even proposed because in some ways it's already
0: happened. It was going to be so I, I looked it up because I didn't want to get everything totally wrong. Um This was happening in 2017 and it was the showrunners of Game of Thrones, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, who were going to be leading the show. Um, And that's I mean, that just makes me laugh a little bit because they started this up and then got uh, got kind of canceled, put on the shelf by HBO and then 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 did season eight of Game of Thrones. And now everyone hates them anyway. So that's true. They won out in the end. Um, the underground railroad, however, the TV series is in the works. Uh, it's going to be directed by Barry Jenkins. He directed Moonlight, Oscar winning film from a couple of years ago. Uh, and according to Wikipedia, um, they've been casting people. They've been, you know, uh, get, getting production ready. Um, right now, no one's filming anything because of the, uh, coronavirus, but this at least is happening. And again, like I, it's going to be on Amazon, um, I do, I am interested in it. It's going to be difficult to watch as it's supposed to be. But I think, you know, again, having read the book, um, I definitely am interested to see how they translate that into, into a limited series for TV. And, you know, given the pedigree of the people behind it, specifically Barry Jenkins, uh, I would imagine that it's, you know, the, once this is out, the marketing, the Amazon marketing train will be, will be a roll in, so you won't you won't be you won't be able to miss commercials and ads and everything for it.
1: Definitely. I think that transitions right into one of my two next books. I kind of combined these for reasons that you'll see as I explain it, but it's it's Vox by Christina Dolcher and Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. And as many, many people know, quite recently, Handmaid's Tale was taken from the novel form that it was and turned into a really haunting, really anxiety inducing series on Hulu. Um, the reason that I connected these books is they both are written in a really intelligent manner to highlight the way that America attacks women. Um, So Vox is it's set in a United States where half of the population has been forced into silence um, because women have been placed with armbands that only allow them to speak a hundred words a day. Uh, They're no longer taught to read or write. They have been removed from the workplace and in overwhelming religious belief, put back into the kitchen um, the story's... This is sounding very handmade, stylish. It It really, there are a lot of similarities. Um, the story's main character was Dr. Jean Mc- McKellen, and she spends the whole novel trying to figure out how to get her, her voice back, how to fight for her daughter's voice, and how to fight for women everywhere in terms of, you know, getting back to what they deserve. Um, the novel was compared a lot to margaret atwood it's her debut novel so to come out and be compared to margaret atwood that's a pretty big ass accomplishment like she's kind of the queen of dystopia um for those who don't know a lot about handmaid's tale i'm not going to spoil it for you because every person who has ever lived should read this book one time <laughs> um it basically tells the con the story of a country which used to be the United States and how certain medical changes have impacted the country and how the country shifts when women are viewed more as livestock for breeding than as equal humans to men. Um, Both books are extremely powerful. Both are worth reading. I'm not going to talk a lot about this next book, but if you're adding books that are very similar to this, you should also read Red Clocks by Lena Zumas. It's very similar in the fact that the entire book is based on attacks on women and how women overcome this and how they should be respected and the things that we overlook that they bring to the table. It All three books are beautiful. Well, as beautiful as horrifying dystopian novels that give you nightmares can be.
0: Yes. A very a very important clarification, but um an apt one nonetheless. The next book on my list is called Blonde Roots by Bernardine Everisto. And um, this is actually a book that I've just started to read. Um and uh Everisto is of uh of, of British and Nigerian descent. Uh this is also her debut novel so it kind of dovetails nicely into that. Um this, this novel, it asks like a big what if, and that is what if Africans had enslaved Europeans rather than the other way around? So before you even get into anything in this book, it has a map and I love maps. Um, uh, They're always challenging to read. Like whenever a map is in the beginning of a book, I'm always like, okay, I need to remember this page because I'm going to have to reference this map 1800 times. Uh, and it's no different in this one. So What's really fascinating about this is that the Eastern Hemisphere, it's flipped. So it has Africa and, and essentially the Middle East on the top in the North, and it has Europe on the South. And the idea here is that, um, it, it transposes the experience of the millions upon millions of, of, sla- of, of people that were stolen from their homes and villages into Africa and enslaved in Europe and in the New World and it makes them uh Europeans instead that are stolen from their homes and villages and enslaved uh in Africa and in the New World um uh I think I might have said I think I might have reversed that before but I think you I think you could probably understand what I was trying to get to anyway this novel in particular it tells a story of an English woman named Doris who is taken from her home and enslaved and um early. So like you get the story of Doris and the people that she's around, the other slaves, and they are all given slave names in the same way that uh, people in Africa were given um, anglicized slave names in either Europe or in the Americas. Um, They are given slave names and it's, I mean, this book is intended to be a satire. And so you kind of have to read it under that lens and like everything that you're reading is intended for you to, um, it's intended for you to be in on the joke. And like you, if you know anything about history, then like, you know, the joke is that like, this is like, oh, well, what if, what if it was white people that had been enslaved rather than black people? Um, but it it goes, it goes further than that, at least in the parts that I'm up to so far. Um, so there's early on in the book, the Doris is is like retelling a story from her childhood and, Uh, it was her job to kind of go and collect her father after he had been out drinking or something like that. And she goes and finds him and he's just kind of mellow and like maybe half asleep, like singing a song to himself. And Doris describes the song as like an old folk song or like a church song that's been passed down for generations. And then in the book, Evaristo includes four lines, like like some from the song. And it's Scarborough Fair by Simon and Garfunkel. That's amazing. So like I read that, I was just, I, it was like, it was funny that, I mean, I'm going to use that term loosely, but it was like Simon and Garfunkel is the, is the, you know, the church, the church music, the folk music, the oral tradition music of the slaves in this book. And it's just like such a clever thing of something that, you know, you would never think of. And like what this does, at least I hope among other things is it allows people to imagine the inverse of that, of like what the very real tens of millions of people who were enslaved about what, what they would have gone through and what traditions they would have left behind and what traditions they would have tried to preserve in the new world and in Europe. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really interested to see where the rest of this book goes. Uh, I will definitely report back on it, but That song is the, uh, it's the Parsley Sage Rosemary and Time song for any Simon and Garfunkel fans out there. But I read that line and I'm like, wait a second, I know that song. And I had to look it up to confirm that I was, I was like, man, that's very, it's very smart. Very, very
1: smart. It's extremely creative. It's very, very insightful. And it's a great tool to make people just think. And that's something that I've always loved about sci-fi and dystopia. There's always like an underlined humor to it that you have to really be paid attention to catch. But when you catch it, you're yeah. like, this is super clever. It's, you know, it's nerd clever, but it's clever. Um, I don't know which direction to go with this because <laughs> your book was so good and there's no way for me to tie it in. I'm going to be brief with this one. I have two more. Um, okay. I couldn't, I couldn't make this list without putting the hunger game series on here. I, I love that series. I think it's important. I think it's as important literally right now as it's ever been. Um, Because the entire series is about highlighting what can happen if a government has too much control of its people. And I think that the fight to the death in the arena is... There to show power that government can have over people. I think that the way that the rich are celebrating the death of these poor kids is definitely an amazing way to depict the wedge between the rich and the poor. And I think the entire way that the narrative builds up to the resistance. And the freedoms that people deserve is extremely strong. They do a great job with Katniss of making her learn something about herself and making her learn to trust people, which is great. And I really like the story between, you know, her and PETA. I think that it's a it's a really good, well-created character arc between two people. Um, I have not read... The new one that just came out, I wanted to give the three books a reread first. I'm very close to being done with Mockingjay. And then I'm going to move into the new book, which we're not going to talk about today. We'll save that for later. But I do think that this series deserves to be on this list. It's very good.
0: Yeah, I I have not I have not read any of the Hunger Games books or have seen any of the movies for that matter. Uh, But they're certainly on my list to do. Uh, they're certainly on my list. There's a lot of books in the world. There are a lot of books in the world. Speaking of which I'm about to give you three more to read. I bet you didn't see that coming. Do it. And I did. I did Uh, see that coming. (laughs) (laughs) The last, the last, uh, my last section here for this, for this discussion is a trilogy of books. It's called the Sentinel trilogy. That's Sentinel with a C, not with an S, not the bad guys from the X-Men. C-E-N-T-E-N-A-L. Sentinel trilogy. Uh, by a woman named Malka Older, and so these are three books that take place in in the nearish future, where the world is divided into, um, <clears throat> it's in divided into a hundred thousand person groups, hence the like the Sentinel, like that's what that refers to, and basically in this world, the the government, the governments that exist in it and the other kind of groups, they're all under the watchful eye of this organization called information. So it information is essentially like Google and Facebook and Twitter combined, and then multiplied by a hundred. So it's like this all knowing, all seeing, uh, entity for better or worse. Um, there are a lot of ways in which like you can already imagine how that would be bad. This kind of ever present surveillance state. Um, the, what these books focus on is the the structure of this world. And so in every 10 years, there are global elections where every sentinel, every group of a hundred thousand people votes on who they want to like lead, who they want as their leader. Um, and in s- some of them are governments that used to resemble the old ways. Some of them are corporations like in this world, Philip Morris, the cigarette company, oh, like they are in charge of a whole bunch of Sentinels. And what they offer is, um, I can't remember what they offer, but it's something like, uh, there are benefits and drawbacks to like all these different corporations or all these governments that are vying for, um, that are vying for power in this world. And so the first book deals with, the next election that's in line and where we pick up the story. It's the third one of these global elections. So it's not like the system has been around forever. And that's also kind of the point that information as this global entity is only been exi- is only existed for 20 some odd years in the, in the world of this book. Um, so there's definitely a lot of skepticism to it. The second book deals with what are um, countries that are called null states. So, while most of the world has adopted this sentinel system, there are still plenty of holdout areas like Switzerland. Switzerland is, uh, will be neutral to the end and they are just as neutral in the world of this book. So like there's a part in the second book, which takes place in on the European continent. And there's like very serious borders between null states and between sentinel states. And it's really very fascinating. Um, The third book, deals with more, more of like information on a bigger picture, a bigger scale, like what the role of this kind of organization is in this new world order. Cause like in the beginning, everyone like, was like, Oh, this is great. We have news and social media and information, lowercase I information at our fingertips. And then like, you kind of see over time how that evolves and how this ever present surveillance state becomes something very different and about how like the powers that be, in charge of information, capital I information are doing things to like manipulate the system, pull the levers and turn the wheels and do all these kinds of underhanded things for their own benefit. Uh, it's a really, it's a really fascinating trilogy of books. I read them all last year. Um, which was great for me because I could read them all. Uh, I didn't read them like in a row, but spaced out throughout the course of the year. Uh, I really want to read them again just because like the tech of that world is really fascinating. And I just love reading about near future tech. Uh, But I need to, I need to like give it a little bit of time to breathe so I can forget everything that happened and then come back to them and start over. Uh, The first, the first book is called infomocracy. The second book is called null states. And the third book is called state tectonics. But if you look at Malka older, O L D E R, you will find them. I highly, highly recommend them. Um, There's really fascinating, really well done. Uh, the older herself has a background in like humanitarian aid, and that's a very ever-present ever theme throughout the book. And so, it's not just that the books are super smart and well-informed, but the writer is super smart and well-informed, and it re, like it really shows. It really shines through. Highly recommended.
1: Definitely going to read them. Those sound amazing.
0: Um, my final
1: book on the list is Blindness. Uh, it's by Jose Saramago. Um, who is a brilliant writer. He's Nobel Prize award-winning writer. Um, this book specifically stands out to me in the stuff that I've read by him because it's kind of hopeful in a book that doesn't have a lot of hope, which is very interesting. Um, so trying to explain this without spoilers. Basically, there's, a, there's an unexplained mass epidemic that creates blindness it's kind of like a a milky whiteness you don't go blind in the traditional sense that you would believe where you just see nothing you just see like white um but because of this since many 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 people are affected by it like society kind of breaks down in a way um there's like a lengthy quarantine that comes from it Um, There's food shortage. quarantine. I wouldn't know anything about that. That's not even a thing that is real. Um, There's a food shortage anxiety uh, because of issues with deliveries because they're shorthanded. There's lack of organization from the government. Um, There's lack of sensitivity from the government and the military. And then deaths begin to happen because of things like, you know, lack of medical supplies that are being delivered and things like this. Um, The thing that really stood out to me, though, is there's this group of people that work together, and the story really shows how humanity can work together to solve problems during things like this, and that as things become rowdy and things become shitty, um, there are people that rise up to help rather than come together to burn down society. And it really stands out to me. It makes me remember this quote that Mr. Rogers always had that his mom used to tell him about when you were, I'm not going to be able to nail the exact quote, but during times of fear, look for the helpers is essentially the quote. Mm -hmm. Um, And this book kind of reminded me of that, that even in the worst times, there are good people who contribute to good things during bad times. And I, I've really always loved that about this book. He also writes beautifully. His language is, is, is stunning.
0: I'm definitely gonna have to pick that one up. It sounds like in the way in which you were describing the, the blindness, it, it's, it was like sounding very Stephen King-ish for me. Um, but that's probably on purpose.
1: Possibly. I love Stephen Justin, like, King. Just in like his kind of style, you know? Yeah, I will I will fight to the death for Stephen King. I love Stephen King.
0: He's great. He also um uh just seems to be like a just a great human being. He seems like a cool hat is off to him. Um somebody on on recently on Twitter was trying to pick a fight with him for being uh like a Hollywood elite, and he's like, dude, I live in Maine. What are you talking about?
1: Yeah, oh, I love
0: Stephen King. Follow, follow Stephen King on yes, Twitter. He's a great follow. He's very funny. Okay. Um actually Twitter is the perfect segue into the next the next thing I wanted to talk about as we wind down this episode. So, Twitter is t- Twitter contains multitudes. It is both amazing and just a dumpster fire. Really, most of the times within the same thread and God only knows what we where we would be as a society without Twitter right now. Um, but without it, we certainly wouldn't have had this exchange that happened over the weekend, which has to do with J.K. Rowling. If you've been living under a rock, J.K. Rowling is the creator of the Harry Potter series, um, the most successful children's author in the history of the world. Uh, that's J.K. Rowling. You probably already know that, but it's worth repeating. It, It bears repeating just for the sake of what happened. So she once again inserted herself into a conversation that was not about her to again demean and devalue transgender lives and anybody who identifies as transgender. And this this just continues to be just such a disappointing saga. Uh, And just, uh, do you know um, Jamila Jamil? She's the actress on The Good Place uh, and many other things. But I saw her post something like that uh, to J.K. Rowling is a verb and it means uh, to continue to like to actively destroy your legacy is to J.K. Rowling yourself. And that's just a perfect it's just a perfect metaphor for that. In this. Oh, God. OK. In her, quote unquote, super air quote argument, she literally wrote, wrote the words, I know and love trans people, but. You, no, no, you, that's we're not having any of that. If you write a statement and instead of ending that statement with a period, you end it with comma, but you have lost. You have just negated everything that you have just said. Nothing that you said before that matters because you ended you went comma, but and then went on a whole other thing, which just destroys everything that came before it.
1: That statement almost always oh. precursors your racist uncle's shit at christmas
0: yeah i'm not racist but i know and love trans people but and i not have any of this um the another part of this just continues to be disappointing is that she is in her 50s 60s 40s she's a grown woman is what i'm getting at she has lived a life and that she like continues to demonstrate that she is unable to understand the difference between gender identity and sexuality. That was another thing that she conflated the two on purpose and really pushing like false and harmful narratives um, in in these tweets over the weekend. Uh, let me put this as clearly as I can. Whatever your gender identity is, whatever your sexuality is, neither of which, by the way, is limited to a binary choice both exist on a wide spectrum. You exist and are valid, and no one at all has the authority to tell you otherwise, not even the most successful children's author in the world.
1: Period. I don't know that I could have said that any better. You nailed that. I mean, I have some thoughts on this. I, we were talking about it last night, and I'll just quickly reiterate it. It's disappointing. It's, it's disappointing that the person that created this series that... In my lifetime, I've never seen a series, a fictional creation affect more people for good, affect more people to be okay with who they are, affect more people to push themselves to be weird, to be different, to be poor, to be comfortable being the kid that lived underneath the staircase and believe that they could go on to be something great. It's disappointing that this person can be such a dickhole like y- you've you've spent seven novels not small novels like novels that you look at and you go holy shit how am i going to read this gigantic book pushing the idea that it's okay to be the weird girl like luna and to be from the humble upbringing that Harry dealt with to be Hagrid and like you've told kids their whole life just to believe in themselves and to be themselves. And now you're like adding an asterisk to that shit. Like it's ridiculous. And it's, it's,
0: it's pulling a JK Rowling. I spent some time today um, revisiting this uh, and just to kind of see where the conversation was going. You know, there are no shortage of people, uh, uh, verified people, you know, people that have a, people that have a following and then have a voice and that use that voice for good. Unlike JK Rowling responding to this and putting their two cents in. Um, And it's, it's, it's heartening to see, it's heartening to see people, coming to the defense of of the right side of history, especially in this way where again, prior to a couple of years ago where J.K. Rowling starts to like retcon things in Harry Potter every other day and starts to add in things, um, that I none of this really came up, at least that I recall. Maybe something somewhere, but certainly not in as public a forum as Twitter and in the way it's come up uh in these latest instances. And um The Jamila Jamil quote, I really like the to JK Rowling yourself. Uh, But I was following the conversation today and I came across, I was just kind of reading one of the one thread and there are people and they're arguing with each other about what this is, because that's also what Twitter is for. And I came across my favorite tweet of all time. It's going to be really hard to top this, but there's a guy in here. I don't know his name. He goes by DJ Vex on Twitter. So I'm giving him a free shout out. And he was arguing back and forth with somebody and some guy made just the dumbest point ever. And his response was, this dude is trying to be a pizza cutter, all edge and no point. And oh I was just like, my God, that's it. That is amazing. That is the, that's amazing. I love that comeback. I love that line. It's perfect. And it also is perfect Twitter, all edge and no point. That's brilliant. I love it. That is brilliant. Okay. Um, This has been a great discussion. Um, I hope that you out there in podcast land uh, read the books that we have mentioned. I am certainly going to add more books to my ever-growing reading list, which is also part of the fun of this. Uh, I'm really looking forward to reading the rest of Blonde Roots and really whatever comes next. Um, You and I were actually talking earlier off the podcast about reading more and reading more broadly. And it's certainly been something I've been trying to do You know, this year has been, it's been a difficult reading year for me. I think I'm on book five or six now, because again, I spent months doing anything but reading. Um, And of the books I've read this year, pulling up the list, I'm on book five. So again, it's been a very slow reading year for me. Only one of which was by a white man. And that was the only one by a man either was Journey to the Center of the Earth. Um, All the four, four others are by women. Um, two, two, yeah. Uh, two of which authors of color and it wasn't something that I, I sought out necessarily, but again, like I, I really, that, that's one of the, it's one of the benefits of reading. You get to read about experiences that are unlike your own. Um, sometimes very unlike your own in the, in instances of, um, all of the books that we've mentioned here today. Yeah. And so it's something that, uh, I really, when I'm able to like get my brain into reading, it's something that's, you know, it's um therapy for me in a way. Definitely. And so I at least, I hope, I hope that I've been able to like get back to that and um, can kind of pick up the pace for the rest of the year. For
1: sure. Yeah. As I was saying earlier, I think that, you know, starting July 1st, I think I'm going to commit to 365 days of non-white male literature. So like everything I read will be female or person of color. So I think that that's my goal.
0: That's great. Uh, I can offer you lots of suggestions as I'm sure other people can, but, um, Oh wait, speaking of suggestions, I also want to give a shout out to Victoria Schwab or V Schwab. Um, she's another great author. She, uh, had put up on probably both Twitter and Instagram, uh, this really great list of recommendations of, uh, of books over the weekend of, um, that have representation across the spectrum of representation of, uh, of race and gender and sexuality. Um, she's also just like a stellar human being. I didn't get to like physically meet her, but I saw her at BookCon on a panel. Um, just delightful. And, uh, I highly recommend you go, go check her out. Um, she has like a whole catalog of books that are all, all of them are on my list. I just have not read any of them. Uh, Okay. This has been a great discussion. I hope that you out there in podcast land have taken some recommendations from us. If you have any recommendations for us, certainly let us know, tweet at us, uh, leave us comments on Twitter or Instagram at JoshCastPod. That would be lovely. If you have enjoyed this show, uh, we would love it if you would leave us a nice rating or review on Apple Podcasts and or a follow on Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, wherever you happen to listen. Those things would really help us out. If you want to support the show financially, you can do so at patreon.com slash untitledjoshcast. To follow the show, again, you can do so on Twitter or Instagram at both joshcastpod, and you can find us on Twitch at twitch.tv slash untitledjoshcast. This show is written and hosted by me, Josh Gershman, and Josh Hammond. It is edited by me, and it is produced by Ryland James. The podcast's intro music is Gemini by Alki, and the podcast's outro music is is cautious by Emma Rosa. Both appear on the Untitled Josh Cast with permission from the artists. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Untitled Josh Cast. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.